Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's podcast for Christ Followers Bible Study, we are in the book of Malachi. We're in chapter 3. Now, we, we read actually to verse 6, but we'll, we didn't actually get to discuss 3. So we'll start in chapter 3. And first, let's open with a word of prayer. Leslie, would you lead us in prayer, please? Lord, Thank you for this time we have together, and I pray your blessings on this Bible study. Help us to be faithful to your word and to you, and to help us to grow and minister to others what we have learned. Thank you for this opportunity, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's good to be back with everyone again. Yeah, we we are down to chapter 3 in Malachi. We had noted in the first two chapters that God's attitude towards Judah as the remnant of Israel was a very negative, particularly the priests and the leaders of the people were severely criticized for leading the people astray. They were They were offering defective livestock for sacrifices. They were treating God like he wasn't really there, and it's a very strong denunciation. Even the name Malachi, we noted, means my messenger, and no one is really sure if it's a actual name of a person or just a descriptive uh, title, but uh, anyway, it's very hostile. We also don't know exactly when it was written, uh, but it's assumed sometime between 470 and 200 B.C., with most uh, scholars leaning towards an earlier date. But um, this is, however you date it, it's the last message through a Hebrew prophet until John the Baptist arrives on the scene there in the first century. Now, chapter 3 is uh, very important, and so we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 6 to start off our time this evening. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites 
and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. All right, thank you. We noted, I believe, last time that everyone, every scholar from virtually every religious entity that has any regard for the Old Testament well, and the New Testament regards the messenger in verse 1 here as John the Baptist because this is actually quoted in, the, in Matthew 11, for instance, and we're told that this was speaking about John the Baptist. So there's no real room for discussion. Now, right after John the Baptist, we go into the coming in judgment of the Lord. And most scholars realize that the Hebrew prophets could not discern any difference between the first coming of the Messiah and the so-called second coming of the Messiah. To them, it was all one and the same event looking forward uh, hundreds of years. And that's, that's how the futurists uh, excuse this, because there's still a lot of them are trying to put thousands of years in between the first and the second coming. And, uh, you know, they're saying from 500 years back, you can't see that 2,000-year gap. Well, I just don't really buy that when you look at all the other evidence. But what we see that if this is uh, consistent with the book of Daniel, where all of these events happen at the end of the 69th and in the 70th week, it's all one period of time, the last days of Israel, the last days that um, Moses spoke about in the Song of Moses back in Deuteronomy 30:31, the last days that Peter spoke about in Acts 3 on the Temple Mount. Even though they're spread out over 40 years, a prophet could accurately describe it as one happening. And uh, that's what we see here. We see John the Baptist preparing the way, and this is very consistent with the message of John himself, as we've seen in, in our examination of the Gospels. John the Baptist comes out protesting against the leadership of Judah, uh, Judea at that time and warning them that the root of the tree has already been laid bare and the Lord is already chopping at the root, and the fire, the uh, tree is going to be chopped down and thrown into a fire and be consumed. So it's a very similar language to what Malachi uses here. The messenger of the covenant is coming, and who can abide the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire. And this imagery of a, of a bright light, of a bright burning fire, is consistently used to talk about these last days of Israel. And to those who are ready and waiting for his coming, it will be like a beautiful picture of light. 
to those who are not ready and don't have any interest in it, it will be a consuming fire that will burn them up, just as the tree in John's image uh, will be burned up. And in the parables of Christ, he used the same imagery in a lot of his parables. The tree that doesn't bear good fruit, after giving it many chances, finally the farmer will chop it down and burn it in a fire because it's good for nothing. And so we see a very consistent message here in Malachi 3 with the message of John the Baptist, with all of the messages of the Hebrew prophets before this, and with the urgent message of the apostles after Christ ascends into heaven. So it's it's very consistent, uh, that's for sure. And I think we might have noted last week that our friend Schofield has to make explanation about this uh, for Chapter 3 because he has to put their gap in there. He acknowledges John the Baptist. He acknowledges that the prophets couldn't see the difference between the first and second coming. But, but he adds, but... Malachi did not see the separating interval consequent upon the rejection of the king. And this is a a critical aspect of dispensationalist mythology, uh, Christian Zionist mythology, that God failed in his plan to set up the kingdom when Judah rejected it, and he had to, at the last minute, put in a 2,000-year, 3,000-year gap which made all of the prophecies uh, invalid. It put a 3,000-year gap in between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. It it made all the prophets false prophets, according to Moses' definition of a false prophet. In other words, if a prophet predicts something and says when it's going to happen and it doesn't happen, that man is a false prophet. So the gap theory makes all the prophets false prophets. It makes Jesus a false prophet. It makes Peter... Paul and all of the apostles, false prophets. But this is the key linchpin in dispensationalist mythology, is that the Jews rejected the kingdom, and so God had to change his plan and throw the church in as just a temporary thing that was never predicted in any prophecy. It's just a temporary holding unit. The real glory is still vested in physical Israel, and the true kingdom will come through physical Israel. And when the Jews do accept the Messiah in the last days, then the Christians will be allowed to join into the kingdom. But the glory is in Israel, the physical country of Israel, and not in the church, which was just an afterthought and a temporary holding pattern. Completely contradictory to the whole message of the Bible from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. So we do see a note trying to defend this uh, this fantasy uh, here on verse 1 of Malachi chapter 3. I, I talked a long time there. Would anyone else like to add anything at this time? Well done. And you're right. It is extremely important. We must continue to at all times point out the error of the dispensational movement because it is perhaps the most powerful and the most certainly the most active movement in America today in political circles, certainly in the political church. So uh, it's imperative that we, that you continue to point that out, and I want to thank you. 
Oh, certainly. I, uh, we have a, a preacher at our local church who's been here a little less than a year, and uh, when he was getting his master's in theology, dispensationalism was mentioned and pointed out as a great evil, but they didn't really give much credence to it or the Schofield Bible, and he says there's less and less material out there on the Schofield Bible. My wife chimed in. She always goes to religious bookstores. She says there's far fewer Schofield Bibles on the shelves in all these stores than there was 10 or 15 years ago. So You know uh, why? They revised the Schofield well, Bible into different uh, genres. So they don't need Schofield uh, per se. They, yeah, they use Schofield uh, by the new translations using the Schofield notes anyway. Well, I, yeah, I was wondering if there was something else that was uh, replacing it that doesn't have the word Schofield. I yes, know they've got are, one are, uh, for the you know other versions besides the King James. Yes, there's numerous uh, study Bibles, like the John MacArthur Study Bible, who doesn't claim to be a dispensationalist, but certainly does preach about the same thing. And even the NIV Study Bible, I think, has uh, elements of the Schofieldism in it very prominently. So I don't know how many new study Bibles there are, but I'm sure uh, 90% of them would pass the test of, all of them would pass the test of being uh, dispensational in their bend. And that's probably why the Schofield Bible is, as a matter of fact, Oxford University Press has also published the Oxford University Press Bible alongside of the Schofield Bible, uh, published by the same publisher. Oxford being the first one to publish Schofield's Bible. Right. They being the publisher of the Schofield Bible. So thank you, Mark. Well, to add to that, uh, for example, the ESV, English Standard Version, has a study Bible, reference Bible, and I know really nothing about it other than the editor, uh, one of the editors of it, I was in his Sunday school class. Uh, he's a professor at a seminary, and he is a dispensationalist, is what I would consider a Christian Zionist. So obviously there's got to be some bent there, uh, not being a direct Schofield, but this dispensationalism is so prevalent that... That's one of the arguments, well, Schofield's book is not used much anymore, but the influence has influenced, just like we said here, a lot of these other translations. Schofield influenced generations through seminaries when they introduced the Schofield Bible. It's only natural that they would morph into other translations from that influence. Right. All right. Um, resuming this uh, look at the first part of Malachi chapter 3, we can see this idea summed up at the end of jumping ahead to chapter 4, verse 5. In closing, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. So it's restated for emphasis at the end of the book. And this great day of judgment coming upon Judea will be prefaced by the work of John the Baptist to awaken the people, to warn them to repent, change their direction before it is too late. 
We also see similar words in places like Joel 2, verse 31, talking about the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Peter references this in his great lesson on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 20. So Peter is telling the crowd that this great and terrible day is upon them which is, of course, consistent with everything Jesus said about this generation. All of these things shall fall on this generation over and over and over again in all of the Gospels. So we see an incredible consistency that has been uh, greatly muddled in the Protestant churches uh, for the last 500 years, unfortunately. But more and more people are now seeing the consistency uh, from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of Revelation and how all of this fits perfectly with the simple truth that this great day of the Lord is the end of physical Israel and this is the subject of the book of Revelation and Daniel 9 and Daniel 12 and Malachi and Joel and all of the other prophets. They are all consistently addressing this uh, great coming, this great day, the parousia in Greek in the New Testament with the end of physical Israel, which more importantly inaugurates the new Israel, the spiritual Israel, the bride of Christ, which was in fact the eternal purpose of God, the reason for the world, the universe being created in the first place, the reason for the patriarchs, for the law of Moses, for the great redemptive work of Jesus Christ, all to redeem a people for God's own possession who would not be like physical Israel, but who would be purified once and for all and could be a dwelling place for God, could be a helpmeet for God on earth as long as the earth shall last. And so it's quite a different worldview uh, than we see taught by the dispensationalists and unfortunately by many other Protestant and, and some Catholic groups as well. But Revelation, I'm trying to see that. Yeah, I've lost my reference on it. Oh, there it is. Uh, the, yeah, great day of his wrath, Revelation 6, verse 17. So anyway, I've beat that to death, but we just see a great consistency <laughs> uh, with the message here in verses 1 through 6 and all of these other messages beginning way back in Genesis 49 with the blessing of Jacob on his children and his prediction of what would happen to their descendants in their final years all the way through the book of Revelation as we learn that all things have been fulfilled, all things have been accomplished, and God's purpose is complete. It Some is of, finished? It is finished, yeah. That's, that's a great way to sum it up. <laughs> Some of the crimes of Judea are listed here in uh, verse 5, uh, the, the judgment is coming on them and they haven't been good people, which is the whole theme of the book of Malachi. There will be a remnant of Israel. Remember, Jacob and Israel are the same person, the same people, the descendants of, of Jacob, later called Israel. And there would be a righteous remnant of them who who would survive. All right, any other uh, thoughts here on verses 1 through 6? Okay, let's read verses 7 through 12 then, please. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, 
says the Lord Almighty. But, you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But, you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, great. Thank you, Leslie. The law of Moses was a blessing and a curse. And, I mean, as it really worked out for the Israelite nation, it was a curse (laughs) for most of them because most of them were utterly destroyed by the law because they could not live up to it. And a, a true student of the law understood that he could not demand a place in God's presence through adherence to law and that he needed a Messiah to reconcile him to God, to be allowed to be in God's presence. Uh, The leadership by the days of Malachi had completely lost sight of this overriding truth. I, I believe when Paul writes of the law being a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, I believe that this is the aspect that he's referring to is that a true student of the law would realize that the law could not grant him a place in God's presence, that he needed something more, and it would turn that student to God in prayer asking for deliverance. Uh, And all of the festivals that the Israelites observed every year looked forward to this deliverance that was required because the law itself was not deliverance. It was a curse. It it had provision for blessing if they lived up to the spirit of it, if not the letter. And that's what this paragraph is contrasting. A good faith effort even would allow God to open these windows of, of heaven and pour out a blessing beyond their ability to receive and would be brightly visible to all of the world because it would be such an obvious blessing. But this was not their case at this time, and, of course, it was not the case in the first century uh, either. The leaders were the blind leading the blind into a ditch, and that's exactly what happened, and they became cursed with the curse, just like uh, verse 9 points out. You know, they had to give a good percentage of their of their income tithing, and they had other offerings on top of that. And this was for the maintenance of the priesthood and the temple environs. In the new kingdom, spiritual Israel, the priests and the temple, these are all images of the believers. And so these gifts that they gave to support the physical infrastructure would correlate to what we do for each other 
because as we learned in, in the Gospel of John, the world will know we are disciples by how we love one another. And so taking care of each other is equivalent of tithing to support the priesthood and the temple uh, in the days of Malachi. Hard any other thoughts on this paragraph? It would be nice to be blessed that way from the Lord. If we oh. only do what he said. It would be wonderful to see. Well, and we're promised, uh, not that I buy into the prosperity gospel at all, but we are promised that if we seek the kingdom first and the righteousness of Christ, that all of our physical needs will be taken care of. And he doesn't promise us that we'll be rich, but he, he does promise that we will have what we really need to accomplish his purpose here on earth. All right, then. Let's read uh, 13 through 15, please. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. All right, thanks. We go back to this legal form of exchange here where a charge is made by God against the people, and then the people deny the charge. And the uh, people are making a defense here that they haven't said anything bad about uh, God, and they haven't gained anything by trying to follow the law and respect God. And things are really topsy-turvy uh, in the land here. We just see it building here towards this final cursed state that Moses described in the Song of Moses uh, as a twisted and perverse generation, uh, the final the final generation of Israel would be twisted and perverse. And this is uh, the same image that we see here in this paragraph. They tempt God and escape. All right, um, let's continue on uh, 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. All right. Again, this idea that there is going to be a remnant in Israel who would be remembered, would be protected, and would be part of this people of God's own possession, which again is this theme that repeats over and over and over again from the beginning of the Bible to the very end. And, and of course, we do see this nucleus of righteous Judeans, the apostles, uh, later Paul and uh, Mary Magdalene, and all these who were 
uh, a righteous remnant in Judah and formed the core of this new bride of, of Christ, the people for his own possession here that's being referred to in verse 17. There'll be discernment uh, between those who serve God and those who don't serve God. And this that's the way it happened. <laughs> and this mm-hmm. this rolls right in to ver- chapter 4. Remember, these chapter divisions were put in artificially much, much later. But this this uh, section on the salvation of the righteous remnant rolls right into chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day comes, it burns like a furnace. All the proud and all that work wickedness shall be stubble. This is the same day that he's talking about up here in chapter 3, verse 17. And this is the day when he makes his own possession. So the church is conceived or maybe even born on the cross. They are betrothed, uh, in a sense, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But the wedding is not consummated. The feast is not held until this day of judgment when the old Israel will be destroyed. The new Israel can't really come into existence until the old Israel is completely destroyed. And that's how chapter 3 ends and how that rolls right in to chapter 4 here. Yeah, so let's let's just go on. Let's read uh, 4, 1 through 3 here. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. All right, now do you see how all this comes together? That This is one day when he's doing these things, which will be... It will be a bright light, and of course Jesus is the bright light in <laughs> uh, in the symbolism of the Bible, which our dispensational mm-hmm. friends have such trouble uh, recognizing or admitting to. Even the day of creation, let there be light, and there was light. Even that, I believe, is an allusion to Jesus Christ. He is the light. He's the only true light, and that light will burn the wicked like a furnace. But to those who fear the name of God, this light will be like the sun rising on a spring day. You know, when the newborn calves go uh, running and leaping across the field, which my wife just loves about as much as anything <laughs> to go watch the newborn calves walk through a green field in the spring or run through them. So th- this this same coming, it's it's both a coming in judgment and a coming uh, in deliverance. And this burning 
will leave them neither root nor branch. So this is going back to this same imagery of Israel as a tree, um, an olive tree, like Paul talks about it. Sometimes they're called a fig tree, and they're going to be chopped down and burned, just like John the Baptist said. So they will be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I do this. So I, I don't know. Do you, do you all see the, the consistency in all of these messages? Yes. yes, yes, Mark. It seems God's being very thorough to do it all in one day here. That's amazing. I can't, I can't help but think about the tremendous confusion that have been read into the Bible by the careless use of the word Jew, replacing Judean and replacing Israelite or replacing the lost sheep of the house of Israel and then the idea being constantly drummed into us that the term Jew then represents exactly the same people as as who populate Israel today when if we read this the way you've explained it to us the proper term should be uh, anything but Jew it should be Israelite or uh, Judean or I guess they'd be talking about Israelites here. Well, and Ju- the Judeans were the remnant of Israel. They were that was their nationality. They most of them were descendants of Judah, but all of the remnant of all the other tribes, you know, half of the tribe of Levi lived in the borders of Judah. So there were a huge number of Levites from which all the priests came. Uh the whole tribe of Benjamin was always part of Judah. And survivors of all of the other tribes were all considered Judean by this time. That was their nationality. They were Israelite by race. They were Judean by nationality. And, yeah, it's totally different. There there are other issues that add to this confusion, such as mistranslating the word land as earth. So when, even right here, uh, at the well, we haven't read it yet. <laughs> the very last verse here, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Well, that that word is not earth; it's the word for land. Lest I smite the land with a curse, because it's it's this land of Palestine that is in view here with this curse and everything. So the King James Bible borrowed this from the. Geneva Bible, and it's carried down all the way through most of our English translations where land is mistranslated as earth. And so this has caused all of these passages that deal with the physical destruction of the Israelite nation in A.D. 70 to be confused with the end of the universe, or at least the Uh end of the world as we know it, unnecessarily for, again, 500 years now and running. And so this just plays into the hands of our dispensationalist friends and, uh, you know, the uh, left-behind books and all of that kind of thing, where they totally twist all of the Hebrew scriptures, which are completely focused on the last days of physical Israel, because not, not because that's the end and all, but because that will also correspond to God accomplishing his eternal purpose of creating a righteous people for his own possession 
for all of eternity. And so that's why the last days of physical Israel are so exciting and so positive because that's when God chose to work his great work of redemption, which is the hope and joy uh, not only of the righteous Israelite like Paul, but of all of us today as Christ's followers. We rejoice in the resurrection, which is accomplished through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We don't have to wait till we die to find out if we're part of this or not. We are, if we believe the word of God, we know that we are part of the resurrection life, which is what all of the Israelite prophets were looking forward to, the hope of Israel. But again, it also corresponded to this horrible judgment and the complete destruction of the Israelite nation. Well, let's just, since we're so close, let's just go ahead here and read uh, 4 through 6, and then I'll let y'all make whatever final comments uh, and questions you want to make. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. All right, thanks. So, again, the the law pointed to Christ, because if you studied the law, if you studied the imagery of the law, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat, the Seven Branch Candlestick, the Showbread, all of these symbols, all of them, pointed towards a future deliverer. And if you remembered the law, then you would be turning to God and begging him to bring about this deliverance. And so the law was was very important, even though it was an onerous thing and a curse really upon the Israelite people. It was also a great blessing because it pointed towards the deliverance of the Messiah of Jesus Christ. And then Elijah is going to be the harbinger of this deliverance and of this judgment. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and and strike the land with a curse. And I don't think he's talking about inter-family relationships here. He's talking about restoring the family bond of God and Israel who are supposed to be family because of the covenant at Mount Sinai. And that, that, that covenant has been broken. The whole book of Malachi has shown and demonstrated how that covenant has been trampled underfoot, broken, ignored, and even mocked by the leaders of the Judean people. So John the Baptist is going to try to rectify that, and he came remember preaching a message of repentance and that's a word we don't use in conversation but just uh, changing your heart changing your direction turning back to God that was the message of John so this message in verse 6 is very consistent but the word land is what's uh, used here and then this word curse this is a very very strong word it was anathema or cherim in the Hebrew and it denoted that the thing on which this uh, curse was placed was given over to utter destruction. 
This is the same word that was pronounced on Jericho uh, back in the book of Joshua. And Deuteronomy uh, 13 gives a detailed account of the ruin that was involved with this type of curse. In the case of Jericho, the city was to be struck with the edge of the sword. Every living thing in it was to be put to death. The spoil was not to be touched. All was accursed and unclean. It was to be wholly consumed with fire and the place given up to perpetual desolation. And so when we see strike the land with a curse, we basically see the fate of Jericho being laid on Judea. And so it's very, very strong words that Malachi closes this message with. Any uh, any thoughts or comments? I I would like to add, we're, we're going to be reading in Acts coming up pretty soon. And I'd like to read Acts 3, 17 through 19. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Surely the book of Acts doesn't continue on with this consistent, fulfilled view of prophecy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess we'll find out. I could have out. read more, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that chapter 3, 17 on, that verse really reiterates what you're saying in Malachi. And there's one other verse just a little ways down that sums this up as well. And we've we've read that uh, before, but that's uh, verse 24 where Peter says, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and, as, and them that followed after him, as many as have spoken, they told of these days. And so... That kind of takes the fire out of our dispensational friends when they start mm-hmm. trying to apply uh, Zechariah and Malachi to present-day events in the Middle East. Just my opinion. It certainly doesn't slow them down, though. It, uh... Well, they just continue to say, well, the Jews in the Bible were there, and here we are. We're here now. And so this is what they were pointing to. It was us. And then, of course, they scoff at the Bible, but... They do say that. Well, thank you all for for your uh, participation and help here in looking at the book of Malachi. Uh, I think it's important to go back and look at these Hebrew books, which set the context for all of the Greek scriptures that we call the New Testament. They're all written in a framework of, of being inundated with knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. And so we see these concepts in Malachi being repeated uh, throughout all of the New Testament books. Well, thanks, Mark. That was an excellent study and certainly a very clear precursor for our study in Acts. We look forward to continuing our study in the book of Acts. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video 
Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.